And one girl said to us, you know, she said, uh, she said to me, sir, uh, she said, you, you know, she said, before I started this program and before I started learning how to sew, she said, my father wouldn't even really look at me and he didn't really talk to me very much. And he, or he, she said he wouldn't talk to me. And she said, and then I got this skill and I started sewing buttons on for people in the village. And I started, you know, uh, darning clothes and I started fixing clothes, et cetera. And I started earning a little bit of money. And she says, and now my father looks at me and he takes me seriously. And all of a sudden she had, she had a voice. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as a regular listeners know, the purpose of the podcast is to encourage you to be a little bit more philanthropic, to act more sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Please subscribe to the show. Please share widely. It makes a huge difference for us. And today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome two guests on board from the Aga Khan Foundation. First guest is Matt Reed, who is the CEO of the Aga Khan Foundation in the UK, and also Tini Sawney, who is the CEO of the Aga Khan Foundation in India. And the interesting thing here is that Matt was on the show on the 20th of October, 2019, and provided a really great overview of the Aga Khan Foundation and the Aga Khan Development Network on a global level. And today we thought it would be really great to delve into the Aga Khan Foundation's activities in India and what that all looks like. So we're gonna focus on women's economic empowerment, improving the lives of girls, a little bit of early childhood development. There's a lot of stuff going on in India, and it is an absolute pleasure to welcome on board Matt back onto the show and Tinny onto the show for the very first time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me back, uh, Alberto. Thanks so much. Where, where, where are you in India today, Tinny? Where are you joining us from? I'm in Delhi, uh, the capital. Great. And Matt, you're in London, right? I am in London today. Excellent. Matt, why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of the Aga Khan Foundation? I know you were the CEO also of the Aga Khan Foundation in India between 2013 and 2016. So you and Tini both know India very, very well. Uh, give us a quick overview of the Aga Khan Foundation at a global level, and then it'd be great to move into uh, its activities in India. Thank you for asking us back and letting us say a little bit more about the work that we're doing. Um, so just for those of you who haven't heard the other show or who heard it but forgot what I said, um, just let me say a little bit about the Aga Khan Development Network. We're a collection of 10 development agencies um, focused on economic, social, and cultural development. We're active in Central and South Asia, Eastern Africa, a bit in West Africa, and a bit in the Middle East. Some of our institutions have been active for over a century. The first Aga Khan school was established in India, as a matter of fact, in Kutch and in Zanzibar uh, in 1905, over 100 years ago. And many of our, our other agencies and activities have been present in these places for decades. And I think that's something that distinguishes us uh, in terms of our approach to development, which is this long-term commitment to the communities that we serve. Just to, to, to back up a little bit, uh, across those 10 agencies devoted to economic, social, and cultural development, uh, we have one for-profit but for-development agency um, that uh, it focuses on 
uh, addressing binding constraints on development. So things like telecommunications, and infrastructure, financial services, all of those things that you need um, to really build the, the sort of the, the, the fundamental building blocks for development in a country. And then they also try to create businesses that can uh, promote maximum employment. Uh, and so we're involved in things with very long value chains to, to create sustainable livelihoods uh, for people and families in these places. Um, and then we have uh, the other nine agencies of the network, all not-for-profit, even on the, that, four, that first side, which is for-profit but for-development, it's run like an enormous social business. So all of the proceeds get reinvested in the group. And so across the group in that sense, our fundamental purpose is uh, the development of the places where we are present. And uh, in that, we really try to do three things. We try to improve the quality of life in all its dimensions, to promote pluralism, so that wherever we work, we work with whoever is present in those communities from whatever faith, whatever background. Um, and then the third thing is to enhance self-reliance or civil society. Just to give you a sense of the, the, the scope of the group, it's about $5.5 billion in annual operations. We employ about 90,000 people. Across those agencies, we work with uh, around 40,000 civil society organizations every year, um, from community organizations, women's savings groups, for example, to local NGOs. That last part is, is also fundamental to what we do because we really want to help people help themselves. We want to help create sustainable foundations for development wherever we're present. And so I think that that last part about creating these sustainable foundations for development linked to the long-term commitment that I talked about really come together very, very well in India. I mean, as I said, the first Aga Khan school was started there over 100 years ago, uh, and we have been present there in a variety of ways ever since. Very impressive. Very impressive. Tenny, tell us a little bit about the Aga Khan Foundation in India and the work that you're uh, you're doing. I mean, it's a huge country and I'm sure there's a lot to be done. Uh, yes, I mean, just taking uh, forward from what Matt said, we have a long history of working here in India. The school that Matt spoke about continues to be a very uh, important educational institution in this port town of Mundra in Gujarat. Mm -hmm. And it was set up in 1905. And the, the functioning of that school also generated a lot of goodwill in the area around the school. I mean, it came to be a very important institution and continues functioning till today. Mm. So taking forward from that very initial intervention, that very initial institution in education, uh, the Arkhan Foundation, we started work in India in 1978. We initially uh, started supporting smaller organizations with the ethos of self-reliance and creating vibrant uh, institutions that could then take forward uh, development interventions. Over time, the Arkhan Foundation and other agencies of the Arkhan Development Network, we have also become implementers of programs in our own uh, way. We work in certain defined states in India. 
uh, Gujarat, where the school was and where we also have other institutions, continues to be a very important and a priority geography for us. We also work in the state of Telangana, Maharashtra, where we also have another very eminent institution of the Arakan Development Network, which is the Prince Ali Khan Hospital. So Maharashtra, Gujarat, Telangana, these are priority states. And then moving into the northern Indian states of Uttar Pradesh and Bihar. And we also have a presence in Delhi through uh, the work of our sister agency, the Arkan Trust for Culture. So it's quite a wide remit of sectors that we work in and also uh, states. The states that we do work in, as Matt said, we have a long-term commitment to those geographies, looking at improving the overall quality of life of communities in those areas. Fascinating. It sounds like you have your work cut out for you. So tell me, Tini, what are some of the priority thematic areas that concern you today? What are the main things that, as we're embarking on a new decade, you're looking at? I know when we spoke on the phone a little while ago, you mentioned that women's economic empowerment was a big piece, gender equality, girls, early childhood development. Tell us a little bit about the thematic areas that you're focusing on over there. In India, we work across the sectors of agriculture. We have a large footprint in agriculture. Our work in agriculture spans the areas where which receive less rainfall, for example, Gujarat, Maharashtra, areas where uh, drought is a recurrent feature. And then we move into the areas in the congetic plains like Bihar and Uttar Pradesh, which are high rainfall areas. And we also have to work with communities that are then affected by flood every year. Mm -hmm. So our work on agriculture spans a great variety of challenges that farmers face. Because we focus so much on disadvantaged communities, smallholder farmers are our priority area. So these are people who have extremely small plots of land, and we therefore have to focus on how do we diversify incomes from these small plots of land. So agriculture is a very core area of focus for us. Mm -hmm. We also do a lot of work on early childhood development. Early childhood development has been a core foundation uh, sector for the Arakan Foundation globally. And uh, we have learned a lot from global best practice that the Arkan Foundation has led in early childhood development in our work in India. Education is another sector that we prioritize. Increasingly, we work very closely with within government schools under agreements that we have with state uh, governments to uh, work on improving the quality of teaching in uh, schools and also strengthening learning outcomes for children. Economic inclusion, ensuring that the poorest are able to access credit, that's another very important part of our work, mm -hmm. and then health and nutrition. Across all of the sectors that we work in, prioritizing the needs of women is central to our work. So whether we work on early childhood development, we look at it from the lens of young mothers, mm -hmm. whether it is Agriculture. We look at the important role that women play in farming and in diversifying uh, livelihoods. In education, we look at how can we strengthen girls' enrollment in schools. So what does it take to actually ensure that girls come to school and actually stay in school? In health and nutrition, what are the priorities for young girls? So across all of the work that we do, the centrality of gender is fundamental to our work. Mm. Can I add one one or two things to what Tini just said? Because I think it's re what you know it's really really uh, very important to understand. So globally, wherever we are as a foundation, we're we're focused on the most marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. 
And so in India, that has meant focusing on Muslim communities, scheduled castes, tribal communities. But the other thing is that if you think about even in those marginalized communities, who are the most marginalized in those communities, and it often turns out that it's women. Mm. And so there are a number of uh, constraints on their development. And so in in our um, emphasis on really trying to uplift and, and – uh, uh, create the foundations for development for those communities. We think focusing on women is uh, is critical. But I think the other thing is that Tinny has has put her uh, really put her finger on, which is that in many places, also focusing on women helps them become engines for development because mm-hmm. there are so many ways in which they're critical to making a change, uh, whether it comes to early childhood development or long-term educational approaches and that sort of thing. So I think there's both what you might think of as a kind of ethical commitment um, to really helping those who are the most marginalized, but also really practical commitment, which is that by improving the lives of women, we can help improve the foundations for development in these communities. So strong economic arguments, not just moral ones. Yeah. I think so, absolutely. Yeah. And tell me, in terms of the attitudes, what are the attitudes in India uh, if one could generalize a little bit, what are the attitudes towards women being active in the labor market, women staying in school for as many years as boys stay in school? What's um, what's the state of affairs on that front? So often it is that women's work is unseen. It's unheard. And what we've tried to do is also to make women realize how important their work is both to the communities in which they reside and also in their households. Mm. I mean, in fact, one of the first steps uh, that we do in our women's empowerment program is to actually make women realize how important their work is, that without their work, the farms wouldn't be tilled. Without their work, the land wouldn't be weeded. And we bring that out quite importantly. And then we kind of take that messaging also to the men in the communities and make them realize that the role of women is so fundamental to the economic development of their work. And therefore, they need to allow women to step out of their homes. So I think those are the kind of attitudes that we see. For example, issues around safety, security for adolescent girls. Mm. Often that becomes an impediment to them being sent to school because schools are particularly in higher classes, the school is at a distance from the home. So how would girls then be able to uh, walk to those areas? So our response to those kind of challenges is, can we then build a community around that? So, for example, if there are three girls of that age who need to go to school, can we then have a dialogue with the parents of all these three girls and have them travel together. So that is that group that then goes. When they go to the school, why is it that girls don't want it? I mean, is it sanitation facilities are not there? Is it that uh, the teachers are not very gender sensitive? So that's how our work on, say, sanitation access becomes important under our health and nutrition portfolio. Uh, can we build safe and secure sanitation facilities for these girls in school, which would then motivate them to stay in school school longer and complete their education. With the teachers, we also work on training teachers on how to respond to the needs of uh, young girls in classes differently. Often because of the conditions that they have come from, they are perhaps not that vocal in their questions or Mm. that. So how can we give space to young girls in classrooms? So that's 
why uh, a focus on gender is important across all the sectors that we work in. And we are actually lucky that we work in all these sectors so that we can bring the linkages out. Mm. For example, our women's self-help groups that Matt spoke about, which is actually one of the first interventions that we start with when we start working with communities. We get women together to form a savings and credit group and start with small savings, which becomes a source of strength for these women. It is these platforms that then we use to actually bring about messages of change. Why don't you send your girls to school? Why do you feel that a woman's role is not important? These platforms are then used and they end up becoming agents of change in the village. We have many examples where these self-help groups have federated at a village level and then even at a district and a block level and have started asking the government for you know things like you don't have a drinking water system in your village. So the Women's Federation will then go and make a plea for that. So we see this change in many uh, different ways. So across the sectors that we work in, we weave this through to be able to make that change in the communities. And as I said, I think it's it, it's good that we work across these sectors because then we can weave these messages of change across our work. Tell me about some of the interventions that you have because you, you touched a little bit on on, uh, on sanitation, on getting school children to school at, at far distances, safety, safeguarding, and so forth. Tell me a little bit about one of your interventions that helps schoolgirls have a voice. And I know it's something that you've mentioned before as well when we spoke last time that um, I think you made a reference to somebody speaking dismissively about a girl or a woman and saying, oh, well, she has her, she, she, she has her views. And sort of like, as if that's a bad thing, that she speaks her mind as if that's a bad thing. Tell me a little bit about some of the interventions that maybe help girls have a voice. One program that perhaps I would really, really be happy to share is a program that actually started from our education intervention. So we were working in the slum areas of um, uh, Patna, which is the capital of uh, the state of Bihar. Mm -hmm. And um, we started in the work around education. We uh, picked up that girls were dropping out of school. And when we went into the communities to actually find out why girls were not coming to school, there were a range of uh, responses. Some were that, you know, in, now we just have to find a, a guy for her and she will have to get married. The other was that, you know, who's going to look at uh, these were homes where uh, the women also went out to work. And this was in, um, uh, you know, working as domestic helps in other people's homes. And it was it was quite an unorganized work environment. The father uh, would go out working as, say, riding a rickshaw in the city or a rag picking was an important uh, source of income. So uh, these girls were actually made to stay back at home to look after uh, siblings and also manage the house. Mm. But they definitely had aspirations of wanting to go back to school. But they had dropped out of school at different uh, grades. I mean, some as early as grade four. And uh, it was difficult then to get them back into schools. So we then started learning centers within the communities where these girls came and we 
those who were of the age that could get back into the school system we actually motivated them to rejoin the school system and worked with the school authorities to actually have a welcoming environment for these girls mm. those girls who had actually crossed the age and who were not in a position to go back to school we actually supported them to take the uh, grade 10 that is the secondary grade examination from the open school system and also at the same time invested in very important life skills education for these young girls what are their rights what are their entitlements uh, what does the law say about you know young girls wh- wh- which you know they can actually reach their full potential and it was that life skills education that was actually the change that really led these girls to think that you know they could have a different life we also then invested in vocational training for some of these girls and many of them have now gone on to start their own small tailoring units we have a group of girls that have actually started growing mushrooms and they very proudly refer to themselves as the mushroom girls of pulwari sharif um <clears throat> one is of course the income that these girls then brought back into their homes and increased the risk in the eyes of their uh, immediate household these were now women who were contributing to the running of the household economy so that increased their status within the household but more importantly in the community there was a greater acceptance of women working that women can work women can contribute women can work outside the home as well and i think that really changed community attitudes in those geographies we've seen an increase in the age of marriage of girls the legal age of marriage in india for girls is 18 but in these communities girls were being married off earlier mm. and as a result of our program we have seen an increase in the age of marriage because girls have now been able to negotiate within their households that you know i really need i want to do more i will not get married at such an early uh, age so i think that's and been I mean- a very powerful program and we have similar programs also in our rural geographies where we invest in the vocational training of women so that these women can actually earn sustainable incomes and become role models in their communities mm incredible can i just just add a you know i think one of the, you you started your question about asking about voice mm-hmm. and you know tinny's given you a sense of some of the the challenges that these young girls have have faced and i mean you know when when she and i would go together and visit some of these young women in bihar or uttar pradesh where we were working you know, one of the things and and a lot of your listeners may not be aware of this but you know traditionally especially in rural india girls eat last in the home right so that it gives you a sense you know so the the way it would work is you know the elders the father the grandfather would eat first they might eat with the brothers and then the the mother and the mother-in-law eat and then the girls eat last so as a result you know uh, about a third of girls in india are malnourished half of them are anemic you know um it gives you a sense of the challenge so imagine in that situation where literally they come last in line imagine what that says to them about their own self-worth and about whether or not they have a voice and i remember you know one time uh, tini and i were together in uttar pradesh yeah and we yep. had gone to this the this sort of afternoon tailoring class mm-hmm. and we it was a life skills class so we called it life skills and we were you know there uh, and it was a group of girls i don't know there were probably 15 of them and they were all sitting around uh, on the floor together and they were all very close to one another they were actually holding hands some of them were kind of wrapped arm in arm 
And, you know, they were laughing and they were happy with one another. And you could tell that they were just, they sort of gained strength from one another. Mm. And so we were asking them, well, you know, just tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what are you learning through this program? What are you doing? What have you done? And one girl said to us, you know, she said, uh, she said to me, sir, uh, she said, you, you know, she said, before I started this program and before I started learning how to sew, she said, my father wouldn't even really look at me and he didn't really talk to me very much. And he, or he, she said he wouldn't talk to me. And she said, and then I got this skill and I started sewing buttons on for people in the village. And I started, you know, uh, darning clothes and I started fixing clothes, etc. And I started earning a little bit of money. And she says, and now my father looks at me and he takes me seriously. And all of a sudden she had, she had a voice with him and she had earned his recognition through that. And you could tell for her that, that that was so powerful. And I mean, it was just one of those things where, you know, a tinny could probably tell you a thousand stories like that. But, you know, when you're traveling together and you sit with people, you just understand how fundamental sometimes uh, these things are and how sometimes things that seem might seem to us quite simple, learning how to sew, learning how to make a little bit of an income can really make a huge difference in someone's life. Yes, I mean, we also, there are uh, so many examples of, um, uh, uh, you know, how our women's self-up groups have actually taken a vow that they would never allow any of their members to be, uh, uh, you know, beaten by their husbands. Uh, issues around domestic violence are also there in the communities that we work with. And as people who go into these villages, it's often difficult to change uh, these mindsets because it really requires a fundamental shift on how the communities actually treat women. And that mm. can only happen from insiders in the sense people from that area themselves. And it's such a joy to see how these women's self-help groups, which actually start off as savings groups, I mean, you know, coming together to pool in a little bit of money every uh, uh, week, sometimes on a monthly basis, and then use that money when they want to start an income earning activity, come together and take a pledge that in the event that any one of our sisters is beaten up by their husband, we're going to sit outside that home till that that man apologizes and takes a pledge that he will never lift a hand against his wife again. I mean, that is powerful. Yes. And that's when change happens, because if it's happened in one village, it would give courage to another group of women to take that pledge themselves. And that is the peer pressure that we feel will change attitudes towards uh, women. So the Absolutely. example that I... I mentioned on uh, when we spoke last, uh, but it was actually about an investment that we'd made in building the knowledge and capacity of women to actually become livestock paravets. And it was that story that now this woman who's a, a recognized livestock paravet in her communities, when she goes around and the older women in the village say, oh, this girl just follows her own mind. And she's not uh, uh, she's not to be trusted. And she turns around and actually tells them, I follow my own mind because now I'm a livestock paravet and I'm providing a service to this community that the community really needs. Mm. So that's the change when women themselves can become role models. So some of the early the girls who graduated from our vocational training centers first ended up becoming role models for other girls. I mean, I've heard the first girl who actually started working from one of our centers, I hear many young girls say, oh, I want to be like Sony, because mm. 
they so she went on to actually uh, live her dream uh, she worked for some time at cafe coffee day which is an outlet that sells coffee and that outlet was actually in a hospital complex and it, being in that hospital she you know decided that she wanted to be a nurse so she used her savings to actually enroll for a nursing course and is soon on to becoming a nurse and her family has allowed her to do that because for a long time she actually contributed to the household income and they could see the value of what she was doing so that's how change then happens when these girls go on to become role models and an aspiration for other young girls wonderful absolutely wonderful one uh, one other thing to to add to this because i think tinny gave this very powerful example of these uh, women who have come together and decided that they're going to uh, not allow domestic violence in their village. I think what's also very interesting about that example is that's not something that we told them to do. It's mm-hmm. not something that that's an idea that they that they came up with on their own. Because once you create the platform of the self-help group and the women's organization, they bring their own issues and their own solutions to it. So what we are as an organization is a facilitator. And so, you know, if you think of that across our wider platform, of thousands of these organizations across six states. It gives you a sense of the collective hmm. uh, change and, and potential, really, of this work. It must be, um, must be incredibly rewarding, but also, I imagine, very challenging to go into some of these communities where your mindset and the, the, the notion of women's economic empowerment isn't necessarily something that is part of the daily discourse. Uh, and you, you must feel, and I imagine Tinny, when you're going into a, a new area, you must feel, or the other foundation must feel some sort of pushback from time to time. Um, sometimes the pushback is there, but because we are so embedded in the community organization, the community then comes up with its solution. So again, just taking forward the example, and Matt mentioned that, that this was not something that we went into these groups and told uh, these women. But after having seen the power of that collective, after having seen how the loans from their small group could actually uh, uh, help them change things in their household. Mm -hmm. They just felt that, you know, now we are contributing equally. We're doing much more work than uh, the men in the house. So why should we now face this kind of uh, violence? So that was a solution that they themselves came up with. So when we start our work, we actually invest significant time in actually understanding the community, in mapping the resources that the community has, All of our work has a very strong element of community contribution, whether it is an investment in drinking water, whether it is a new agricultural practice. We bring in some part of our resources, but the dialogue with the community is that you also have to invest both your time and, where possible, your money and labor. Mm. So all of our work with the community is actually a shared plan and a shared vision. We never go into a community with a solution because we recognize that every village is different. Uh, We do not have blanket solutions. The resources that a village has are very different. So our work is very much embedded first and foremost in understanding the community that we work with, coming to the village with some part of our technical knowledge and expertise, but recognizing at the same time that the community has immense technical knowledge and expertise and experience, and then jointly working out a plan. 
another example of uh, some work, in fact, it, it was one of our older interventions in Gujarat, mm-hmm. where we were actually looking at, you know, water stress in villages. And at that time, in the vicinity of those villages, a river used to run and the river had actually gone dry. So a dialogue started with communities across the length of the river. There were 65 villages and the river is the Meghal River. And uh, how can we revive this river? And I remember, uh, I mean, this is almost an intervention that we did about 15 years back, that there was a, we, we were talking about dreams, like, what do you dream of this river? And one woman said, I dream that one day I see the crocodiles in this river again. Mm. And those 65 village communities came together and worked a series of water harvesting structures across the length of the river and made the river a living river again. And just uh, about 10 days back, that story uh, was profiled on uh, Gujarat television. And my colleague Apurva, who's the CEO of the Arkhan Rural Support Program that actually led all of this work, sent me the video recording of that profiling on television. And I said, I mean, after 15 years, the community institution continues. We are not doing anything in those villages now. We have moved on. We have taken up other uh, communities and we work with them. But that uh, the, uh, the 65 villages have a core committee protecting that river still following the rules that they made that no one will put their engines into the river and directly lift water. They will only take water from the wells that uh, the river recharges. Uh, They will not plant certain crops that are water guzzlers. So it was a very strong community uh, movement. Our role was the siting of those water harvesting structures because we had the engineering uh, mindsets, the community dialogue, bringing together these 65 uh, villages. And I remember the days when uh, the dialogue with these 65 villages was worked out. Every night there was a night halt in one of these villages and the one village hosted uh, representatives from all these 65 villages. And that was how that movement spread village to village across the length of the river and the river flows again. So it's almost a magical story, but it's a magical story because the magic was led by these communities. We brought in our technical knowledge and some of our resources. But the community contributed their labor, they contributed their coming together as a community and uh, the sustainability of that intervention. One, that is absolutely wonderful. One of the questions I always ask folks is whether they're feeling optimistic about uh, the next 10 years and, and the run up to the 2030 uh, Sustainable Development Goals. The anecdotes that you're mentioning here to me would indicate to me that you're probably feeling quite optimistic about the, uh, the the fruits of your labor and how things are likely to shape up in the next decade? Uh, definitely so. I think it's these change stories that motivate others. I mean, we have to go back into the communities to identify stories that will motivate others. And that's how, say, movements can happen. Of course, sometimes you feel that the challenge is very immense, but you have to start on that challenge somewhere. And if some of the work that we can do can actually ignite that path to kind of making that change, I think, uh, uh, you know, we we definitely do feel hopeful. Mm. Tini, tell me, how did you, how did you get into this? How did you end up being the, uh, the person who is the chief executive officer of the Aga Khan Foundation across all of India? How did that happen? You're originally from India. Tell, tell us a little bit about your trajectory because 
I'd love to hear about it, and I'm sure it would be very inspiring for uh, for many listeners as well. As I was growing up, I never really thought I would be in uh, the development uh, space. But I think where that mindset changed was when I joined the Institute of Rural Management in Gujarat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it was an institute that trained us on issues related to rural development, uh, the management, how are uh, farmers uh, groups, how do you bring them together. And I think uh, my first exposure to a village was actually in uh, Uttar Pradesh. As part of our training, we had to live for about two months in a village. This was a village which at that time had no water. The only house that had a toilet was where we were put up by our institute. And we went like two of us. So there were two girls from my institute and we went there together. And that's when I realized that if we really have to make a change, uh, perhaps we need to start here. In those times, we were also very much enthused by uh, Mahatma Gandhi's sayings that India resides in its villages. And I think that's where I really found uh, my calling, if you could say. I started working uh, thereafter in uh, rural development, uh, spent a large part of my time actually working uh, and living in uh, villages. And I think that's where, you know, and I mean, it's an incredibly motivating uh, work. The love and affection that one gets is immense. And I joined the Arkhan Foundation in 2002, and I've been with AKF uh, since then. So it's been a great uh, journey, um, a journey when one, where one has really seen the change on the ground and has contributed in some way to making communities more secure and hopeful of that change. So that's been a bit about me. That's amazing. That's very good. One thing also I just wanted to ask you, if you have one key takeaway for our listeners, uh, a key observation, something that you really think would be great for listeners to keep in mind as they go about their daily lives or as they try to improve the world through their work or volunteering or philanthropy, what might that be? So uh, sometimes, you know, we find uh, the greatest stories of courage and empowerment among, uh, you know, those whom we otherwise think of as poor. I have found some of the greatest stories of empowerment among these women that we work in. I mean, sometimes I feel that if I was in their position, I would never have been able to make that change. But the odds with which they have kind of pushed back against and have really made that change for themselves. I always feel that, you know, like that potential is there in everyone. Mm. And with a little bit of support, these people can actually take that potential so much further that you cannot even imagine that. And I see that almost every time I go into these communities that I work in. I mean, I come across uh, women who manage irrigation systems, who are almost like lawyers in their own right, that mm. they will not their communities to grow sugarcane and they stand by those decisions because sugarcane is a water guzzling crop and if we just pump out all the water where it's going to go i mean these are your climate change warriors they don't have that kind of education and they don't have all of the thesis but they know that this is uh, where the difference is going to happen when we see uh, women who've actually uh, you know, pushed back against the violence that they have received within their homes and have actually taken the courage to step out and say that we will serve our community in this way and become entrepreneurs in our own right. So I think the potential is very, very much there. With that little support, that potential can really become an agent of change. So I think that's very inspiring. 
been sometimes when we see the larger picture and you know we, we get a bit demotivated we go back into the communities that we work with and it's those stories of courage and inspiration that actually inspire us as well absolutely wonderful matt do you have any parting thoughts any any parting thoughts from your side now that you've rejoin the podcast today no how could i none at all how could i possibly top uh, tinny in that sense i mean this is why <laughs> no i mean i you know honestly i mean this is why working with her was such a pleasure when i was in india and i was so happy that she became my successor and, and took my place as the ceo because she's take you can you can hear the depth of her understanding of the issues on the ground but what you you might not know or you might you haven't probably haven't heard enough is that you know when tinny goes in and she talks to policymakers um and she is able to bring those stories of change on the ground to policy fora and to you know real recommendations to the government of india for making real change at scale that's where the power of our organization is and i think you, know, you get a sense of why uh, having people like tinny on the ground is so important for us well, thank you both very, very much for joining me today on the Do One Better podcast. It truly has been um, an inspiring conversation. Thank you both. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening. And please do subscribe. Please do share widely. Get your friends to listen as well. It's a labor of love and uh, always value every single listener. Matt, Tini, thank you very much. It's been great. Thank you so much, Alberto. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. Thank you.